Hello and welcome to another Salon exclusive. Lucky you. We want you to be the very first to hear about the books that we're most excited about. So listen up for a series of exclusive readings from writers handpicked by us just for you. Oh, that sounds like a supermarket advert, but it's true. They are handpicked by us just for you and available only on our podcast. Here at Salon, we have long loved the risk-taking journalism of Saskia Vogel. She is, to the erotic, what Bill Bryson is, to maps. Her debut novel, Permission, is, according to the Irish Times, elegant and compelling. Here's Saskia with an exclusive extract from Permission, published by the pioneering and brilliant Dialogue Books, and available now. Hi, I'm Saskia Vogel. I'm the author of the novel, Permission. Permission is an alternative love story about Echo, a failing young actor in Los Angeles who prefers to lose herself in other people's lives rather than contend with her own. After the sudden death of her father, Echo moves back in with her mother to her family home in a suburb built on a rugged coast. As Echo floats through a fog of grief, Orly, a dominatrix, moves in across the street and the relationship they form, including the relationship with Piggy, Orly's client and renter, begins to cut through Echo's fog and right to the heart of the fractures in her family and her life. Permission is part Hollywood tale and part coming-of-age story. Sex and sexuality play a central role, and there are many sex scenes, BDSM-related and otherwise, but my interest in having this focus was more to explore the insights available to us through the erotic. For me, Permission is very much about compassion, finding new forms of intimacy, and exploring the question, how do I want to be loved? Permission is my first novel, and so I want to start my reading on the first page. Last night I couldn't sleep, so I went for a drive. I only meant to take a loop around the peninsula, driving up and down the hills, seeing the city to the north, the port to the west, and the Pacific Ocean reaching for the dark horizon. It was just past midnight, so I tuned in to a rock station that had a late-night call-in show about sex and relationships. It had been on the air as long as I could remember, since before I'd thought of doing anything more than holding hands. It was the kind of show that made driving bearable. Once you've learned the words to every song on the radio, nothing breaks the boredom of sitting behind the wheel like conversation. Nervous callers made themselves vulnerable to a psychologist who'd heard it all before. He did his best to help, assuring people that they were not alone in fear, confusion, or desire. Whatever they wanted, they were allowed, he said, so long as it was safe, sane, and consensual. There was one thing he'd ask that made me bristle. Whenever a girl called in with a problem, he'd start off by asking, Where's Dad? Where's Dad? as if that were the key to it all. Part one, Echo. The hills were sleeping giants, twitching as they dreamed. Each time they rolled in over their beds, maintenance crews arrived to fix the cracks in the coastal road and the sea sucked stones from the shore. When the hills caught fire during the dry season, I stood at the cliffs watching helicopters lower their buckets into the water. I'd search for the pilot's eyes as the chopper rose into the sky, up and over my parents' house, hoping they were carrying nothing but water. 
brush fire and broken roads were everyday dangers, like rattlesnakes and car crashes. I kept a packed suitcase in my closet should the earth shake or fire jump the road. Even as a child, I knew this landscape would not hold. The landscape brought other fascinations to my family's front door. We would watch migrating whales logging or lunging in the coves. We spent the season counting and took our tallies to the interpretive center, a squat building next to a lighthouse surrounded by a garden of native plants. Through Bakelite handsets, I listened to underwater recordings of whales, their haunted songs, their hearts. In the long silence between each slow beat, I'd take my pulse. I often returned to this quiet space, finding a relief in the cocoon of a steady, even bass. In another room, dioramas depicted centuries of cliff erosion in the area. 50 feet, 100 feet, gone. The present-day model showed the cliffs as they were. Nothing had crumbled in a long while, even in the landslide zones. But I knew what that meant. A crumbling was overdue. Before I grew old, the land would claim our bodies and we would rise again as ghosts. Ghosts like the young woman who haunted the lighthouse. She had thrown herself off these cliffs when she was sure her sailor would never return. She entered oblivion to find him. It was the most romantic story I knew. I liked to imagine love's oblivion. A yielding of the self to sensation, a sensation that belonged to the nights I fell asleep with my hands cupped between my legs, comforted. On these nights, I was sure I could hear the lovers' laughter rising from the waves. Their joy beckoned. Once, I followed the sound to the end of the garden, through the fence into the cliff, crawling under the rail, inching closer, closer, closer to the edge than I'd ever dared. Peering down the wall of sedimentary rock, I discovered a ledge. Huddled figures wrapped in a cloud of something cloying, like roses wilting in a bowl, laughing as if their rock were the only rock that promised never to fall. Fall, 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 the cliffs whispered. Dear God, if I fall, please let me die on impact. Paralysis would be worse than death, I thought, and it frightened me. I couldn't imagine myself without this body, even though as a child I sensed its limits, the built-in obsolescence. The call grew louder, and eventually I stopped taking walks along the cliffs. By the time I was ten, my father had had enough of my living in fear. He said it was not death that awaited me at the foot of the cliffs, but a beach. I could get anywhere, as long as I knew how to navigate my environment. I think he grew to like those cliffs so much because the longer we spent in that house, the less he seemed to be able to keep a grasp on us, especially on my mother, whose refusal to be pleased was a form of tyranny. The cliffs he could handle. Scaling the sedimentary rock, sliding down a steep and sandy path, he taught me about footholds and grips and how to read the stones. The sea at our feet, indifferent to us. It was a rocky beach, not suitable for swimming or sunbathing, most easily accessed by boat. On the shore, tide pools, sun-baked kelp, seal carcasses, cans eaten by the salty air, weather-beaten dirty magazines, traces of fire. I pictured the molten glow of midnight fishermen roasting their catch, wary of the siren's song. Even the air on the beach was sticky. I would linger by the spreads of nude women, bleaching in the sun, that pleasing tension, the muscular contraction of the sea cucumber, the gentle suction of an anemone's tentacles when I stuck my finger in the water, pretending I was a clownfish, impervious to its sting. Rusty kelp beds broke the blue, 
Red markers bobbed above where fishermen laid their traps. Down the crescent of our cove, my father and I scaled the lip of its rocky maw. When low tide turned to high, frothy waves crashed against the throat of the cave, and when they receded, they licked the pebbled floor clean. The first time I saw the cave and the rocky point, I refused to follow him across. Don't be scared, he said. Just don't fall. Fifteen years we climbed over that cave, and then, one day, he fell. I didn't see it happen. He was ahead of me, and then he wasn't. That's what I told emergency services. There was a response boat, helicopter, harbor patrol, divers. They were out on the water until morning. We were told they'd stay in search and rescue mode until the victim was found. After the 24-hour mark, they started to call it body recovery, but even that search failed. I asked them what they were calling it now, but they would give no answer. They started passing the buck, each one telling me to ask another department. In the aftermath, I spent most of my days at home with my hands pressed to the large glass panes facing our clear ocean view. When I had spent so long looking, I could no longer tell sea from sky. My hands stayed put on the window pane, feeling every vibration, every thud of wind. I was still in the womb when the shipping company they worked for moved my parents from Rotterdam to Los Angeles, but I was old enough to remember when they built it, their dream home, how carefully they chose each detail, the joy they were able to take in each other. I didn't understand why we needed to leave the small house with the floral wallpaper by the port, where we could see the cranes unloading containers from cargo ships, and every day at dusk, a man who skateboarded around the neighborhood with a trumpet under his arm stopped to play taps. But when I first saw the house, it was unreal. A great white box planted atop a bluff, a jut of land pushing into the sea, set apart from every other house on the street. Instead of sirens and trumpets, we heard peacocks and seals. The house was glass and steel and full of light, once inside, you could see the ocean from just about any angle. At sunset, the walls turned tangerine, then violet, before darkness arrived and gave us the stars. Every day, a love letter, my father would say, my mother in his arms, taking in the life they had built together. I preferred to think of them like this, optimistic, trusting in whatever logic kept them from getting a divorce. Standing at that same window, it wasn't the ocean I saw, but seams, silicon, grout, hinges, and brackets, all that was holding the house together and all the ways in which it could fall apart. Cracked Malibu tiles in the entryway, cracks running down the stucco walls. I inspected the silicon that held our kitchen sink in place, the buildup in the corners, the way the basin never really dried. Corrosion. I took the trash cans out of the cabinet under the sink and ran my fingers along the scar-like material holding it in place feeling for edges that had unstuck themselves, testing their integrity with my thumbnails, feeling sick when it slid underneath. After my father disappeared, the Friday of Memorial Day weekend, my mother forgot to cancel the barbecue, which made for awkward conversations at the door. We didn't invite anyone but the caterer in. I unplugged the phone. There was no reason for me to go back to my apartment in the city after the holiday weekend, so I waited a while subsuming myself in her rhythm of sleep and reheated macaroni, marinated meat and booze. The caterer had packed everything into single servings, some for the freezer, some for the fridge. You'll need to eat, she kept saying. My mother split each serving in half 
and when she handed me my plate, she said, this is no excuse to let ourselves go. Blanca cleaned up after us and made sure there was fresh milk for my father, as usual. After the milk went sour, Blanca asked where Mr. Jack was, and my mother told her that he'd be back. But she must have asked around the neighborhood, because I heard her crying in the laundry room. So that was the fantastic Saskia Vogel reading exclusively for you. To find out more about Saskia and her various writings, including her new novel, visit her website. It won't surprise you to learn that her website is saskiavogel.com. That's S-A-S-K-I-A-V-O-G-E-L.com. Permission is available to buy now from all good bookshops.